All right. Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn it open to James chapter 2, verse 14? Uh, James 2, 14. And would you, let's do something a little different. Would you stand this morning as we read God's word, as you hear the word? Let's stand together. Now, a little bit of up, down, but this is good for us. Engages us in what is being read. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds. Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I'm sorry. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Amen. All right. Well, shoot. Right? It's kind of one of those texts today. It's like, oh, I'm not getting off the hook this morning. So James begins by asking a great question. What good is it? What use is it? If someone says they have faith, but they don't have deeds or works or actions that correspond, can that kind of faith save rescue right bring about god's god's deliverance this form of of a question by the way that that james is asking always anticipates a negative answer and so it's assumed that the answer is no no of course not we are talking then about a kind of person who gives a verbal profession or uh, a cognitive assent but doesn't have actions that correspond or correlate to what they're saying So he sums up his argument in verse 24, and he says this. You see, a person is considered righteous, justified by what they do, and not by faith alone. Wait, what? Right? Um, Okay, so here's the question. I want to face the tension right at the outset of this passage so we can get move on and kind of get at what James is really saying. Is this a place where we see that the Bible is actually full of contradictions? 
Right? Is, this, is that what's going on here today? I, I think this is an era where the Bible is probably under more skepticism and rejection than ever before. I have absolutely no data to back that up. So I'm just being honest with you. It's a hunch. Uh, but, I, but I do think that uh, you know, this is one of those classic places in the scriptures where people look and go, ah, see, it's a big scramble of contradictions. One place it says we're saved by faith. Here you're saying you can't be, you're not saved by faith. So anybody who buys this just clearly has a low IQ, right? You're just desperate for some kind of uh, medication for your miserable life. And so you're just trusting something blindly, right? Isn't that the kind of arguments we hear? And so you see, you know, on one hand, James says, look, uh, we're we're not... uh," James says, you aren't saved by faith alone. It's your deeds that justify you. And then Paul, what does he say, right? Paul says, uh, for example... Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by faith, not by work, so that no one can boast. He says in Romans uh, chapter 4, however, the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Or again in Galatians 2, 16, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in the Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, so which is it? Are you on Team Paul, right? Or are you on Team James? I mean, Team Paul seems kind of fun, at least in Romans until you hit chapter 12, right? And then James, I don't know, at least he's honest with us right out of the gate. Which is it, right? Which is it? So should we, like, finally just admit that the Bible is full of contradiction, and just quit church and go to brunch, because that's what everybody else is doing. Or watch football. Are we quitting church today? No, no, we're not. Okay, let me show you why we're not quitting church and why you can save brunch for after church. Okay? All right. Uh, we can look at the Bible uh, and, and see that it's not full of contradiction. Here's why. Um, we don't have to choose between James and Paul, by the way. I don't think you have to choose at all between them. I think that you have to listen to them together. First off... Um, Here's why you don't have to choose between James and Paul. Uh, this is the case really for all of Scripture. You know that the, the word Bible, right, it actually means library, right? What you're getting in this book is not one book, but a collection, a full library uh, of works that come from different types and genres and forms of literature across centuries from different cultures, from various authors. And so what you're getting in Scripture is always more than one perspective. There's more than one perspective happening in the Bible. You don't get that, by the way, with the Quran. You don't get that with the Book of Mormon. Those are downloads, right? They're not uh, emerging from history. They're not emerging from culture. In fact, they're just... Uh, They're uniform, but the Bible has unity. It's not uniform, it is unified. And so you have plurality of perspective in the Bible. And I would even argue, right, I would argue that the Bible is far more diverse than modern Western culture, right? Modern Western culture thinks it's very diverse, but really, it it really shares one basic worldview, Across all kinds of cultures, it's far less diverse than it claims to be. The Bible actually is far more diverse than people give it credit for. And so you have multiple perspectives. And when you have multiple perspectives, you have deeper and better perception. This is why God designed us to have two eyes that work, right? And when two eyes work, you have really good depth perception, right? Because you are looking at the same object from slightly different vantage points, and so you see the fullness of dimension, Right? And so when one goes down, right, it's just a little bit 
harder to get your coffee cup sometimes, right? And so we we have uh, we have to have multiple perspectives to get the fullness of dimension. And so Paul and James each write letters from different perspectives to different audiences for in different intended results. But they're talking about the same thing. Here's another important reality on why you don't have to choose between James and Paul. It's really simple, actually. They're buddies. These guys are friends. They know each other. Um, uh, they are co-workers, so to speak. So what you have in Romans or Ephesians is not a Twitter war against what's happening in James, where people aren't listening to each other. What's happening is you have two friends talking to two communities uh, about the same thing. It's two pastors, really, who are trying to help their congregations live into the profound fullness of the gospel. All right? you, you don't get the same sermon from two different preachers on the same text. You get two very different sermons, don't you? Because there's different perspectives. Acts 15 tells us that James and Paul had conferred to discuss the gospel. In fact, a bunch of people got together and said, the Gentiles, these non-Jews, are coming to Jesus and they're getting the Spirit. And what are we going to do about it? And what do, what do we require of these Gentiles? Uh, do we make them follow the law? What is, what is the gospel to the Gentiles? How do we communicate this? What do we demand of them? And they come to this agreement and it's a historically attested to Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And there were dissenters there. Go read it. But Paul also in his own autobiographical sketch in Galatians 1 says, hey, when I you know, uh, gave allegiance to Jesus the King, I went first to gonna go study the scriptures and then before I launched out in ministry, I went to Jerusalem and I met with James, he says, because he was a pillar of the church. So I went to James to share what I was sharing, to make sure we were on the same page about the good news of Jesus. So they're co-workers. They're on the same page. They're not contradicting. They're complementing one another and showing the fullness of the gospel, not two different gospels. The other third thing, and this is probably the most important, and I'll stop here, uh, is that the language is different. The, the way they're using language is intentionally different. Uh, James uses the word justified or considered righteous, and so does Paul. But here's the thing. In English, I can say awful and have it mean full of awe, right? You're awestruck. I can also use awful to say terrible, really bad, right? And, and justified has its own range of meaning, right? Or considered righteous. Um, so Paul uses... Uh, the word justify to mean make right, right? So I can go pay off my debt and I'm considered to be now justified with my creditor, right? I'm now off the hook, right? I'm considered in the right, in the clear with that creditor. Now, that's making right or making righteous, right? That's being justified in that way. Um, justify can also similarly mean show, right? In the sense of um, if you are a student of mine and you turn in your thesis and I turn it back to you and I say, will you please justify your argument? Do I mean fix your argument? Make it right? No, I mean show me how it's right. Prove it to me. Demonstrate your argument. Are you with me? Okay, all right. So, some of you are lying, but I appreciate the affirmation. Okay. So, all right. And so, Paul is saying... It's faith that makes us right. right. It makes us right with the Lord. James is saying, how do I know you're right with the Lord? Apart from what you do. Okay? 
And so Paul's saying, faith saves us. We are justified by faith, not works. James is saying it is deeds, actions that prove and show your salvation, that you actually have faith. And so when Paul says you are justified by faith, he's saying you are made right with God by what you believe, that you trust Christ and his finished work on the cross. And James, when he says we are justified uh, not by faith alone, but by works, he's saying, look, a mere profession of faith, that's not going to cut it, bro. You have to show through concrete changes in your life that you actually trust this God. Now, this is a helpful summary. It helps me out uh, as a good synthesis of these perspectives. Um, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, 500 years ago, uh, really wrestled with the book of James. He thought, this is, feels kind of anti-gospel. It, just, it doesn't, didn't sit right with him. He didn't care for it too much, but he still wrestled with attention. And his protege, Philip Melanchthon, this guy said this. He said, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. Okay? This is is Melanchthon. I'm pretty sure it was the one. I had a really hard time dialing in on who exactly said it, but I'm pretty sure it was Melanchthon. And then Luther later said this. We are not saved by our works, but if we have no works, there is something amiss with our faith. So Luther himself, the guy who's wrestling with James and like all about the, you know, by faith alone says this, okay? And he's, they're tying this together, okay? So there it is. We're talking about two kinds of faith. One is dead, uh, a dead faith that has no deeds because dead things don't do stuff. The other is a living faith, right? A real, authentic faith, a biblical faith, and living things do things, don't they? They're animated. And so uh, you can keep your Bibles, okay? You don't have to throw them out today. I don't think you ever will. But, um, and you can still get brunch after, so you're good. All right, this whole idea, in fact, of Paul's gospel of saved, saved by faith is something that James takes for granted. It's something that he takes uh, actually as an assumption. You go back to chapter 1, he says our faith is tested, that it's the difficulty of life that brings our faith into maturity. So faith is dynamic, it's not static. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, he assumes Paul's teaching when he says this. He says, Christians are rich in faith and inherit the kingdom God promised to those who love him. Okay, let's just sit on that for a second. If James is saying that Christians are people who are rich in faith and trust, right, and they, they inherit the kingdom God promised to those who love him, what is a Christian in this case? A Christian is an heir, right, as opposed to an employee, right? An employee earns something, An heir receives something. And salvation is not earned, it is received. An employee receives a wage. Wages come for what you do. Are you with me? An heir receives an inheritance. An inheritance comes to you for who you are. Who you are in relationship to someone else. See the difference? See, James is absolutely assuming Paul's just doctrine of justification by faith alone, but he's challenging people who think that you can have a faith that remains alone. Got, got it? I mean, that, that is pretty profound. So I think this helps us with the tension. So let's look at what James is saying now. Now we've kind of sat with the tension between James and potentially Paul and realized they're actually they're, they're, they're making headway for us to see the fullness of the gospel. 
And so let's see, what is it that James is doing? What is it that he's saying about faith? He, he gives us a negative example and a couple of positive examples. Um, let's, let's take a look at the negative example first to see what, what is faith not? What is biblical faith not? Okay, and this will be helpful for us. Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18. Someone will say, James says, you have faith, I have deeds. Hmm, right? Show me your faith by without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Right? You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, so, what's he doing? James is quoting someone, maybe imaginary, maybe real, and the, the essence of what that person is saying is this. You might have faith, I have deeds. In other words, they can be pulled apart. They can be two separate things, right? And so he's arguing against the perspective that you can pull these two things apart. He's saying you can't do that, as if they're, they're spiritual gifts or something, right? Like, you have, you have the deeds gift. Bummer, dude. Right? I've got the faith gift. I'm going to go back and just keep enjoying not doing stuff. Right? I'm going to go back to my comfort, right? Uh, yeah, and James was like, uh-uh, nope, not, like, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you, like, are going to jail, right, so, okay, so, uh, okay, so James is saying, look, you can't do that, um, he uses this proving language, right, go ahead, show me, demonstrate for me your faith without deeds, can't do it, right, I'll, I'll show you my faith by what I do, I don't know any other way to show you what I believe other than to do something about it. And so he uses an example, and it's a staggering example, actually. It's, uh, this is a total move of a literary ninja who is just ready to get you. And this is awesome. Check it out. It says, you believe there's one God. Some manuscript traditions have, uh, you believe God is one. The point here is he's quoting from the Old Testament. You believe there's one God. He's quoting from the central teaching of Israel, the, the central tenet of biblical faith that goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Okay? Shema. That's what it means. It's a, the Hebrew word for hear. Shema Israel. Hear, Israel. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. And so he says, great, you give verbal profession or intellectual assent to the central tenet of the Bible. One God. Good. Great. Good on you. Have good theology. For us today, the equivalent might be, yeah, you believe that there is one God who created the universe. Maybe you believe you can assent and agree to the idea that Jesus is God in the flesh. You'll celebrate it at Christmas and you'll be pumped about it. You'll believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world even. You can agree to this and say, yeah, and he rose from the dead and you'll celebrate it on Good Friday and Easter. Great. You may even say, yeah, I believe the Bible is God's word. You might have this list, this set of beliefs that you can subscribe to, like a podcast. Say, yeah, I believe that. I'll take that one and that one and that one. I like those. Yeah, that's right. I'm good. And James would say, good. You know who else believes that? The demons. Like, yep, they're on the same page too. Um, you know, the demons agree with you. And I, James would probably say, like, you, you probably have worse theology than the demons. They probably 
it, it, when it really comes down to it, they have like a PhD in the spiritual realm. They know some stuff about God. They know his power. They see it. They, they know what he can do. They, they know his holiness, his majesty, his perfection, his sovereignty. Right? Good theology is good. It's just not enough. And so one uh, commentator says, it is good to possess an accurate theology, an accurate picture of God, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology, that good understanding of God, also possesses us. So James is saying, the right theology doesn't qualify you to be any more than a demon spiritually. Not by itself. That's a scary thought. Right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? It's good. So what else is James saying? Not only do they agree with the central teachings of Scripture, right? But demons even respond. Like they have a they have a shudder in response. I mean, how many of us can assent to good theology and just leave it in a compartment and go about our modern Western secular life of individualistic consumption? As if our theology has absolutely nothing to do with life. Right? And so we can say, I agree. I'll come back to that next Sunday. Right? We'll sing about it. I got stuff to do. I've got business to run. I've got kids to raise. I got my own thing to do. Right? As if there's no response to the truth and the claims of Scripture. But the demons, they at least shudder. They respond. Right? They don't ignore it. They go, Ugh. right? It's like that scene in The Lion King, right? With the hyenas who are all like, Mufasa. And the other one's like, Ugh, right? Like, no, say it again, Mufasa. Ugh, right? Like, that's, I think that's like kind of the imagery, I guess. It's like, they don't like Mufasa. They're against him. And the demons don't love Yahweh. They're against him. They shudder in fear. Why? Well, because he's more powerful than them and he's opposed to their life-destroying agenda. And so, in other words, you can have sound doctrine and a respect and a fear for God's power and his sovereignty. Right? You, you can believe and shudder, but not have faith. Here's what I mean. Um, you can get all the information. You can graduate from a seminary or whatever. You can believe God's great. You can be scared of punishment. You can even base your life on respecting God's power and His holiness. And you can live a very upright moral life. You can alter your behavior. Uh, you can do kind things. You can do works of mercy and justice even. You can be deeply religious. And all of that can be no more than a mere shuddering. Some of us tend... Uh, toward information. I'm a five on the Enneagram, so I'm like completely, I love to learn stuff. I nerd out, right? But that is not enough, right? You have to let it mess with you, right? So you can have beliefs without faith. Sometimes I think people, in an attempt to share their faith, really just share their beliefs with people. It's not really a faith. There's no life-transforming work of Jesus in their life. And they're just sharing the things that they agree to. And other people are like, yeah, but I don't agree to it. And it's not persuasive because you're not sharing your faith. You're actually just sharing beliefs. And so that may speak to you today, right? So faith is not mere assent 
to a set of beliefs. It's not a box to check and go, yeah, I, I can agree to that. Others of us might tend towards deeds. We're busy. We got stuff to do for God, maybe, or for ourselves. And so faith is also not mere shuddering or only deeds. You may give regularly as a shuddering response of, I better do this or else, right? Some of you serve in ministry as a, man, I, I, I hope this maybe gets God off my back in some other areas. I'll do this for him instead. Maybe you feed the poor and you serve your neighbors. Maybe you do all kinds of things. But it's not a personal connection to Jesus as your Savior, who you love and surrender to in trust and affection. So James is saying, look, don't be like the demons. Right? Who, 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 thinking you can somehow disconnect faith from works, somehow have beliefs without transformation, or somehow have works of shuddering without affection for Jesus. You see, you can have beliefs without transformation and works without affection. And this is no more uh, than demonic spirituality. And so James is saying you can't pull apart faith from deeds on any level. Right? You, we can't do it. You won't have a biblical faith if you only have a hollowed out orthodoxy without action, just mere assent. You won't have biblical faith if you're just shuddering in fear and have some subservient acquiescence to God's power in your life. Neither of those are biblical faith. But they're a whole lot like the experience of demons. Well, let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. If this is seeming convicting, right? if this is seeming like it's getting some, maybe a little too close for comfort, then let me encourage you and say, I believe that's the grace of God warming you up and inviting you in to a life of faith. Right? Take it as grace today if it's very uncomfortable. If it's so uncomfortable, then it's probably God's grace saying, yeah, I, I know, I have more for you than agreements. I have better for you than shuddering. I've given Christ my son. I'll come back to that in a second. So, maybe you're thinking, okay, great. I want to do more than agree. I want to do more than just shudder. What does biblical faith look like? It gives us two examples. First of all, James says, biblically rooted, living faith is active toward the other. It's compassionate and uh, active says this, suppose a brother or a sister without clothes uh, or daily food uh, is in your midst, right? If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if unaccompanied by action, is dead. Okay, so in the previous section, James has drawn on this theme of mercy and favoritism. Remember, Dave talked about this last week. And and James says this. This is crazy. Uh, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to everyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so he's talking about mercy and he's saying God's going to judge the merciless. If you don't show mercy, like 
There's no mercy. Whoa, that's brutal, right? Well, no, let's think about it for a second. When those guys are on the road, the blind guys on the road to Jericho, I think it was, and, and they're crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us! Son of David, have mercy on us! Are they saying, Hey, Jesus, we'd like you to be nice. We'd like you to say some stuff to us that just makes us feel good. No, right? They mean, have mercy on us means, would you see our need? Would you act on it? Would you make our sight right? Would you give us perception again? Where we can see our world and see your face. They're desperate. And so mercy, biblically, is seeing the material need of someone. And when you have power to act, acting, right? Providing that need materially, economically, physically, spiritually, And James is saying, God's going to show judgment to those who don't act when they have power to do so. He says in James, uh, the end of his letter, in James 5, the one who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James is all about not just hearing the word, but doing it, right? He's all about an integration. And so James starts his theme, right? Back in chapter 1, religion that God sees as faultless is the kind... Uh, that looks after orphans and widows in their distress, right? And as well as keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. He uses the illustration of favoritism, right? He says, well, look, if you see somebody in shabby clothes and you tell them to sit at your feet and you see somebody in nice clothes and you tell them to sit at the table, well, have you not just shown favoritism, right? And you've, you've sinned and you've, you've essentially, like, you're running contrary to the gospel, and he says, you know, faith that sees the needs of others but doesn't act isn't faith. That's a sham. Biblical faith always acts in imitation of God's acts towards us. Right? We clothe uh, the naked because Christ clothed us in our shame. We feed the hungry because Christ fed us when we were starved for Sustenance and meaning. We care for the fatherless because Christ died to make us children of the Father. We love because Christ loved us, right? We act toward the other in the manner in which Christ has acted towards us. Our faith that Christ has acted this way towards us is revealed in how we treat the other. I can tell how I'm doing with Jesus based on how I'm treating people. If I'm impatient and rude, I'm not really relishing in the fact that I'm loved. And I know the same is true for you. Our connection to each other mirrors how we view God treating us. A gospel identity will transform us. And I have to say, church, I know the heart here. I mean, I've been a part of this community for, I think, like 15 years. And I've seen over the years just a, a hunger to do something about our world and for our world and and I'm seeing it all around and it's awesome like we just what well, we're going to talk more about this next week but do you know that there's a house on our property it, um, I used to live in it and then they fixed it up for all the refugees that were coming in it was really um, <laughs> I'm just kidding uh, no it was really it was this wonderful beautiful spot on our property and we've had 39 refugees come from around the world and get to live there and be ta- met at the airport by you and driven and loved and provided for by you. And St. Child House is a safe place for these at-risk moms to just get loved. Right? And on and on and on. And Tuesday nights, there's this meal that just keeps happening for people. Right? For anybody who wants. It's Jesus' table. And you can, 
Right? And so there's, there's much to affirm and there's also much to invite you to. If you're on the sidelines of all of this, I'd just say to you, today, you can get connected and like put some skin in the game on taking care of our world. The first thing we see then is that living faith, actual faith in Jesus, the kind that recognizes we are heirs, that we are recipients of his very good gospel. Right? Do you know that's you today? Do you know you're an heir? Do you know you're a recipient of his love? You relish it? And the first thing we see is that people who get that treat others out of that and act when there is need in the manner in which Christ has acted toward us. The second thing, though, the second move that faith makes, and, and it's simultaneous, it's not, it's not a linear thing, but it's something that James is showing us, is that biblical faith is always active towards God. It isn't just active, it's obediently active, it's worshipfully active. Listen to what he says. Verse 20, you, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And I wish you could see the wordplay here. Do you want, do you want evidence, and, and the way it works out in its original language is, do you want evidence that faith without works doesn't work? Right? That's what he's saying. The useless means it just doesn't work. Do you want, do you want to know that faith that doesn't, isn't, is unaccompanied by works, it doesn't work? Well, let's look at, the Old Testament. Look at verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Okay. Okay. Right? Now, this might be a head-scratcher at first. Like, wait, what? This is, this, is, this is a sharp contrast, maybe, to what we might be thinking initially. But here's where he's a ninja again. And he gets us. And he gets us in really thinking about the Old Testament story of Abraham. He says, wasn't Abraham considered righteous when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you're... Now, I'm getting ready. I'm going to teach Genesis this next week uh, out at the coast. And so I've got Genesis, like, deep in my brain right now. And I... I read that this week and I went, no, he didn't. God didn't say anything about Abraham being righteous in Genesis 22. Go ahead, look up Genesis 22, the story about Abraham offering Isaac. Not one mention of the word tzedakah, right? Not, no righteousness mentioned. Where does Abraham get declared righteous? Chapter 15, seven chapters earlier. So there's what Abraham does in chapter 22. He... Uh, he obeys God's word to go take his son, his only son, Isaac, the son of the promise, the son whom, through whom the Messiah would come and God would set the world right and bless all the nations through his offspring. Big promise, big deal. And, they, and God's like, hey, take him up the hill to this place I'm going to show you, Mount Moriah, and you're going uh, to offer him as a sacrifice. Like, kill him there. Okay, right? And so what does he do? He goes, he takes his son, they walk together, they suffer this moment together, and they, they get up there, and he puts the son on the altar. He's like sharpening the knife, he's getting this thing ready, and he goes for it, and God just out of the heavens says, No, hold up, don't lay a hand on him. Now I see that you fear me, or worship me, right? That's the, the other way that that word fear means, worship. You worship me, not your son, not your stuff that I give you, but the giver. And so he provides this, this other sacrifice, this ram. And so seven chapters earlier, 
God says, hey, through you, I'm going to bless the world and you're going to have offspring as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, amen. It's a Hebrew way of saying, I trust that. Yep. Okay. I believe. Right. And so Abraham amends the promise of God in chapter 15. And God says, that is righteousness. That's right relationship with me. Right. All you need to do is trust. And hey, by the way, is Abraham a good guy or a bad guy? Because God calls him righteous. Is he good or bad? How many of you are like, yeah, Abraham's a good guy. How many of you know I'm setting you up for failure? Okay. How many of you would say he's a bad guy? Yeah, what's the first thing he does after God says, okay, come out of Babylon, out of Ur, right? The, the archetype city for humans in rebellion. Come out of there, go to the land, I'll show you. He goes, good step. And then what does he do as soon as he gets there? He makes up a story, right? He like puts his wife out in front. He's like, yeah, she's my sister. She's not my wife. Take her, not me. Right? I mean, what a dirtbag. Like, can you imagine the look Sarai gave Abram? Like, like, can you just, I can just imagine Lauren like, are you kidding me? You know, I, I'm like, uh-uh, take him, right? Like, so anyway, uh, he, he's a, just a scoundrel. And he does that twice. Like, that's not the only time he does it. He does it again later. He repeats his mistake. God looks at this guy who says amen to his promise. And how does God describe him? Righteous. Righteous. This guy's right with me. And so, we see that righteousness that God pronounces over him being fulfilled in chapter 22. He, his trust starts back here. But it isn't fully worked out until later in his life. The climax of his story. And so, what is all this about? James is saying, look, Genesis 15, God sees Abraham's faith and says, that's righteous. You're in right relationship with me. In chapter 22, that trust, that righteous trust, that's worked out. It's tested. It is demonstrated in a powerful way when Abraham takes what's most important to him in his life and he says, okay, Lord, do it. Do it. You will do with it. I would trust you more than my own perception. I love you more than I love my son. Right? I mean, can you imagine this? And so the NIV says his faith is made complete in what he did. The scripture was fulfilled. Genesis 15 comes to fruition in Genesis 22. And our faith is completed in our actions. And so what's the relationship Abraham has with God? How does James describe it? Friendship. Friendship. That is not the relationships demons have with the living God, right? How is Abraham different than the demons? You see, if you're just assenting to beliefs, you're no more than a pupil. If you're just shuddering in fear, you're no more than a demon. But if you have faith in action, what are you? You're a friend of the Most High God. And friends of the Most High God are willing to put themselves on the altar. They're willing to put the things that are most important up before him and live in a context of surrender. That's what... That's what Christ's followers do. Working faith always works out in worshipful response. It means that nothing's more precious to you than that intimacy with Jesus. Nothing's more precious to you than his smiling face. His friendship to you is greater than any other thing, any other person And James says, if that's true of you, you're on the right track with this biblical faith. 
And I find that we're in a cultural moment, too, that's less inclined to ask the question, how can I be justified before God? I mean, I think our cultural moment is more of like, a, why wouldn't God think I'm awesome? Right? Like that, I think that's probably more the posture. Like, any sniff of judgment, I'm out, right? Like, what? Well, you can't critique me. I am, I'm great, just the way God made me, right? Well, yeah, you were good the way God made you, but then you made yourself sinful. So, you're not so great, right? And so anyway, you, you, we have this, this cultural moment where I think James is still speaking very precisely to us. Maybe the question might not be, how can I be justified? But maybe if you're in a zone of self-understanding that's like, yeah, I'm kind of awesome. James is really helpful. It's a corrective to say, yeah, but what do your deeds look like? Are your deeds compassionate to your brothers and sisters? Are your deeds really ultimately surrendered to God's word? Because that's the person that God says, that's a justified person, that's a righteous person. You might be thinking, oh, oops, maybe I thought too soon, right? Because the deal is Abraham surrendered and obeyed. He took God at his word and trusted and followed it through with his action. And so there are deeds that correspond to what he says. Because not just any life pleases God. Thank heaven the Father sent the Son. Thank heaven Jesus was sent all right, to be for us what we utterly failed to be, who paid the utter cost of our rebellion. And let me tell you today why we can live like Abraham, why we can live in surrender, why we can have faith and action like Abraham that puts what's most important in our life up for grabs to the Creator and Redeemer. It's simply this. Because when we look at Jesus, we don't find a God who merely gave lip service to His love for us. When we look at Jesus, we don't find a God who withheld his only son for us. See that Abraham story about a father and son suffering on the way to an altar and provision being made so one didn't have to die? That story reaches its climax in Jesus. It's a foreshadow of the gospel story about the father who sends the son, but this time doesn't take the son off the altar. Because the son is the provision so that we don't have to die. The death of ultimate judgment, right? And so he says, no, I'll stand in your place. He could have bailed, but it was worth it for him to suffer in order to reconcile the world to himself. It was worth hell to bring us into friendship with himself. See, he withheld nothing so that he can give us everything of himself. His spirit in you, his son clothing you, his the Father embracing you. And when you see God like that, when you see that God is this kind of God, when you see it that way, um, the God who walked to the altar for you and didn't get off, who bled to make you clean, do you want to live any other way other than surrender? I mean, isn't that life better than just agreement? Better than just shuddering in fear. In fact, he comes to us and dies so that we don't have to shudder in fear, but we can stand in his presence, loved and embraced. And so that what he says is true isn't just information, but it's a story that forms us and draws us in as participants. This is what faith does. It responds in love and worship. It obeys and it follows all the way to whatever the living God calls us to. Right? And some of us have our own Isaacs to offer today. Some of us have our own issues to put up on the altar. And maybe today it's just simply the first time of recognizing and realizing that spiritually 
I've just been nothing different than a demon. I've been shuddering maybe with a few responses of, you know, attempted morality. But I've never surrendered in love. I've never trusted in obedience. I've never walked with God as a friend. If that's you today, you simply amen God. You just simply say, I believe your promise. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I, I, I trust your forgiveness. I trust your offer of life. And I surrender to you. Others of you, you've been walking around with agreements or beliefs, but not a faith like Abraham's. Don't go another hour today without being more like Abraham by putting whatever is most important up on that altar to the Lord and saying, I will trust all the way through, whether it's security whether it's your future, maybe it's an immoral relationship in your life today, it's a habit, it's an attitude, an argument. Maybe there's something that just you're running away from forgiving today because it's easier to hold on to the anger. But to bring your life to the altar today and to say, Lord, I surrender. I can die to that habit so that God can live through me. I can allow God to forgive that because he died for me. You see, I can live surrendered today because he withheld nothing for me. So I want to invite us now. I want to invite the band to come up. I want to invite the ushers to go get uh, communion ready. Uh, and, and what's beautiful about communion is it's this moment that reminds us once again that we're heirs. Because there's nothing you do. Like you didn't pay to get in. You didn't, you're not buying the meal. You didn't prep the meal. It's offered to you. It's sure it's a cracker and it's juice, but it's representative of Christ's body and his blood. And he says, these things are offered to you before you ever desired it. Reconciliation was offered to you before you ever wanted it. Right? And, and so it's a moment for us to just be reminded again that all that we have we receive from the living God. And he feeds us and nourishes us to act in accordance with his purpose. If you're here today, um, know that we would love to pray for you too. Maybe there's somebody you know today that you just you know they need prayer and you're, you want to just intercede for them. And we'd love to join you in that. Maybe the beauty of God and his self-giving today is just drawing you closer and you want to respond in prayer. Maybe there's something today that you're ready to pair up from actions to beliefs, right? And to have a, a faith that is integrated. And you just want us to pray with you on that. I want to invite you guys forward this morning to uh, give the bread and the cup. And would you take it, take the bread, take the cup, and you hold on to it. We will take it together in a few minutes. Just take it together um, w- when we're ready. So just hold it. And as you hold it, would you do this? Would you listen to this song that Ali's prepared for us? It's tying together these, these realities. We are called to live this life of faith and deeds. Would you just allow the Spirit to use the song in your life today and draw you closer to Him as you hold the elements?